The second privilege I have here this morning is to bring God's word to bear on our lives. It is always a privilege to preach God's word. So I'd be grateful if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 19. And if you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it Words That Change Everything. See, we're presently in a series going through the book of Exodus. And so if you're new, that's what we're doing. We're spending about 50 weeks looking at the book of Exodus and we're following the story of the Israelites, how they were drawn out of Egypt, how they were set free and then drawn into the presence of God, drawn into a relationship with Him. And right here in chapter 19, we find ourselves in one of the most important parts of the entire book. See, in Exodus chapter 3... God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. God was on the mountain of God at that point with Moses and God speaks to him and he says, listen, it's time for me to save my people. I'm going to bring them out of Egypt and then I want you to gather them together and bring them back to me. And that will be a sign to you that this is my promise. It's kind of a quirky one because you think, well, how, how, you're kind of promising something, but it's, we'll see it down in the future. Well, this is the moment when God keeps his promise because they are at Mount Sinai. They're back. Moses is back. And he's got two to three million Israelites with him. They have now been saved by God's incredible grace for the last three months. They've been walking around the wilderness, going to places like Elim and Marah and Rephidim. But now they've arrived. They've arrived at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And for the next 12 months, they're going to be staying put because God wants to teach them some stuff. And this is where it all begins. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we stand with the people of Israel today, would we be aware that we're there? We are at the mountain with them. And you this morning are addressing us. Lord, your word is alive and active. We're not just reading history from a long time ago that where we pick up our eyes and our ears and find an interest. No, we're addressed by you. You speak to us. So Lord, through my voice, would all of us this morning encounter your voice. Speak to our hearts, Lord. 
change our lives through these words that change everything. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in my mind, there is something, nothing quite like a good story. I love a good story, whether it be reading a book or a novel or whether it be watching a movie, which is usually my preference. I love a good story. If it turns into a trilogy, even better. And one of the best out there when it comes to a good story, at least in my mind, is J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I love it. I remember seeing it first at the cinema, and I didn't realize it was going to be a trilogy, right? So you, you see the first one, and you're just like, oh my goodness. And I'm just like, Emma's probably talking to me. I don't know anybody else is in the room. Popcorn, it ran out. I don't care. I'm just eating the cardboard. I'm just engaged with all that is taking place. And then it got to the end of the first one. You're like, what? It hasn't, fi- it hasn't finished. And then you find out, I've got to wait two years for the next one. And then two years again, it was terrible. But The Lord of the Rings is an incredibly, mo- incredibly moving story. As you watch it all the way through, you're like, that is genius. That is amazing. And I find myself, each and every time I watch it, just totally engrossed in the storyline and all that is taking place. And in every good story that I believe is out there, there is a hinge moment in the story. A moment in the story where you know it's never going to be the same again. Because of what's taking place, nothing will ever be the same again. And in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, that moment comes, I believe, in Rivendell, when all the different counties and kingdoms are gathered around the table, and the whole premise is, who will take the ring? Who will carry the ring to Mordor? Who will take the ring and drop it in the flame so that it can be resolved and all good people can be saved? And they start arguing over who's going to take the ring. They can't decide. And then you hear a small hobbit's voice in the corner. Frodo. I'll take the ring. And they don't hear. So he speaks up. I'll take the ring. And you see Gandalf's face just look down as he realizes this is always the way it was meant to be. It was always meant to be Frodo, but this is going to be such a hard journey for him. His life will never be the same again. And he shouts out again, I will take the ring. And everybody stops and looks at him. And everybody following the storyline realizes in that moment, this story will never be the same again. Frodo is going to carry the ring. And he's going to go on the adventure of his life, but his life will never be the same again. It's the hinge moment of the story. Well, right here in the book of Exodus, what we have here in chapter 19, particularly verses 4 through 6, is the hinge moment of the entire story. It's the moment where you realize nothing will ever be the same again after these words are uttered. Because what we have here from God to us are words that change everything. See, all scholars agree that verses 4 through 6 are the heart of the entire book of Exodus. What we have in those three verses are the heartbeat of the entire book. Some scholars would actually say that those three verses are the heart of the entire Pentateuch. And others would say even more, no, they're not just the heart of the Pentateuch, they are the heart of the entire Old Testament. What God says there to the people of Israel is the most important thing that happens in the Old Testament, some scholars would believe. It's the hinge moment of the book. The moment where as we lean in, we realize nothing will ever be the same again because these are words that change everything. And here's my hope this morning. 
My hope this morning is that as we go through these words that change everything, that if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that these words would call you to flee from your sin and run straight to the Lord. For He's the Savior. He's the King. He is the one who will change your life. This is my hope, if you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior, that these words from God will change your life. And it's my hope if you are here today and you are a believer, you belong to the Lord, you've put your faith in Him as your Lord and Savior. It's my hope that you would realize afresh this morning just how precious you are to Him. How He sees you. And the profound opportunity that you have on your life as a result of the great salvation that He has given you. These are words that change everything. So three points this morning. Number one, Our glorious salvation. Number two, our purposeful and kind command. And then number three, our profound opportunity. Let's start where the Lord starts. Then number one, our glorious salvation. And look again at verse four. This is the word of the Lord. And he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you out on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, here's the point, my friends. What he's trying to help us see is that we, like the Israelites, are a saved and redeemed people. When it comes to our identity, when it comes to understanding who you are as a local church, who you are as an individual, God is right here issuing you with an identity. And the identity is this, you are a saved and redeemed people. That's why I love the way he starts in verse 4. He simply says, you yourselves. Anybody ever study English at school? (laughs) Anybody ever get told you never say that and negates the same thing? You don't say you yourselves, you just say you. It's weird to say it twice. But to God, it's not weird at all because he wants to emphasize it to us. It's his way of emboldening something or putting in italics or underlining it. He wants you to understand this is personal between me and you. I want you to see who you are. You yourselves. And in just one verse then, he reminds Israel first and foremostly and points Israel first and foremostly back to all that he has done to rescue them and to bring them to himself. He's saying to them in this moment, listen, Israel, you know, you yourselves have seen. You were there. You were there when the plagues were taking place as a nation. You saw how I cast darkness on the people, your enemies, but I gave you light. You saw how I sent plagues time after time and again on the people, but not on you. I cared for you, Israel. You were there. You yourselves saw firsthand when I ripped apart the Red Sea and you walked through it on dry ground. You were there walking through the ocean, Israel. And you were there when you got to the other side. And I brought the ocean crashing back down on your enemies. You saw when I destroyed them, Israel. You sang to me in the wilderness. And then for the last three months, Israel, you were there when I provided for you again and again and again. You wanted water? I gave you water. You wanted food? I gave you food. You wanted direction? I gave you direction. You wanted help? I gave you help. 
You needed leadership, I gave you leadership. I provided for you again and again and again. Israel, you yourselves have seen how I have saved you. And so Israel, I trust you know then who you are. You are a saved people. God wants them to understand their identity. You are a saved and a redeemed people. And Israel, I trust you know then how I really feel about you. See, the tone in verse 4 is strikingly personal. He says, you, I, you, I, you, I. It's personal. It's God having a conversation with Israel. And likewise, it is strikingly tender in tone. For you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings. And brought you to myself. You know, as you hear those words, the eagle's wings, if you are a Lord of the Rings lover like myself, you will once again cast your mind back to J.R.R. Tolkien's use of eagles in the storyline. See, there are a number of occasions in the storyline, whether it's Gandalf when he's stuck in the tower, or with the hobbits at Mount Doom, they get saved. How? The eagles come. And as they fall, thinking they've got nothing left, they land on the eagles. And the eagles carry them to safety. Each and every time. And what God wants to help Israel see in this moment is, listen, Israel, listen up. That's exactly what I've done for you. You've come to myself now as your king and as your savior. And all you brought to the party was your bondage. And your chains. I carried you here on eagle's wings. I saved you. I came after you and I carried you here. The Israelites had been eyewitnesses to an incredible act of redemption, hadn't they? They'd seen how God had saved them through the plagues, saved them through the Red Sea, how God by his grace had provided for them and brought them near to him. And yet, my friends, I submit to you, that act of redemption, incredible though it is, pales into insignificance when it comes to the act of redemption that you have first-hand seen with your very own eyes. Namely, your own. Your own salvation. Your own act of redemption. You see, the Bible is clear that at one time, we were all slaves to sin. Everybody was a slave at some point. And the Bible makes it clear that we are all, in and of ourselves, slaves to sin. We are slaves to the power and penalty of sin in our lives. We're in bondage. We're in chains. We rejected the Creator. We took the created, and the chains went on. And we can't get out of it. We can't just, oh, I'll just go to church. I'll just pray more. Do what you like. You cannot break those bondage and chains. It is the power and penalty of sin on all of our lives. And what is maybe even more frightening of all is the Bible helps us see not only are you in chains to the power and penalty of sin, you're totally dead to that reality. Can't even see it. So Paul says this in Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3. He says, As for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived 
and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. My friends, the Bible's clear that in and of ourselves, that is all of our stories. We are all slaves to sin. We are all objects of His wrath. We are all in chains to the power and penalty of sin in our lives. We can't get out of it. We can't break it. And we will face one day standing before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we will face in and of ourselves naturally the penalty of sin on our lives. Why? Because that's what we wanted. We wanted to reject Him and take the creation. And God will not be mocked. He's a holy king of kings. And so the Bible's clear. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're in bondage to slavery and sin. And there's nothing we can do about it. So how is it then that you and I can sit here today and know, but I've been set free. I've been forgiven of my sin. I know it. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. I've been reconciled to God. I know him as the one true living God. I know him as friend and redeemer and king. In fact, more than that, I know him as father because he's adopted me. I actually carry his surname now. He adopted me into his very family. I was once his enemy, but now I find myself seated at the very table of God where he cares for me and loves me and watches over me. And I know heaven is my home because he saved me. How is that possible that we can say that? Sovereign grace, here's how. Because in his grace, he bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to himself. How kind of the Lord. And right up front, he wants us to be reminded, Israel, sovereign grace, I saved you. You want to know what your identity is? Your identity is that of being a saved and redeemed people. For you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb alone. I saved you. For at just the right time, God sent forth His Son. He sent forth the greater Moses for one greater than Moses would come. Moses never paid for our sin. But one greater than Moses would come and at the right time he would give his life as a ransom for many. And through faith in him, he would make it possible for you and I to be carried forward to safety on eagle's wings. What do you bring to the party? Do you need to flap? Well, you can if you want, but it ain't going to do nothing. The eagles have got this. All you've got to do is rest on them. And throw yourself on them and realize, i got nothing. The only way that I'm ever going to get back to him is on the wings of the eagle. And God looks back at your eyes and says, you know what? Yeah, and that's your identity. You are a saved and a redeemed people. And then he continues through these words that change everything with number two, our purposeful and kind command. So you appear that the Lord isn't done yet. He doesn't just want to remind them, this is who you are. Thanks for coming on your way. No, he wants to remind them, there's more to this, Israel. So this is what we read. Verse 4 again. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians 
and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. There it is, our purposeful and kind command. Now, it's possible to to hear, I think, uh, difficultly for our eyes and ears to get thrown off here by the word if. And to think that the main attention of our gaze should fall on the word if. And we wrongly think about this word if, where it says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, then maybe this is the if of decision here. I.e., if I live my life as a good Christian, if I actually do this, then God will save me. You have to understand that's not the case. Why? Because God's just told you I've saved you. I've done it all. Your identity is saved and redeemed. God didn't give Moses the Ten Commandments at the burning bush, run them into Egypt, and say, tell this to the people. Here's my commandments, and if they do it, I will save them. He didn't do that, did he? No, he went into Egypt and he saved his people. And now he wants to help them see, this isn't the if of decision, guys. I've already saved you by my grace and for my glory. This is the if of opportunity. God's going to make a covenant with them. They are already his people. They are already his treasured possession. And he's going to make a covenant with them and make it clear to them, listen, if you walk in the light of the covenant, if you obey my voice, you will enjoy the blessings of the covenant. It will go well for you. But if you don't obey my voice as my children, if you don't actually actually follow my covenant as my children, you'll still be my children, but you will enjoy the curses of my covenant. It's just not going to go well for you. And Israel, I love you. And I want it to go well for you. So I want you to obey my voice and keep my covenant. See, the focus of this verse then can so easily be misrepresented, I believe, by the word if. But the actual focus of this word is not in the word if, it's on the first two words of the verse, which is now therefore. Israel, in light of who you are, in light that you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through the blood of the Lamb alone, in light of the fact that I have bore you on eagles' wings, now therefore, in light of who you are, in light of who I've declared you to be, in light of your great salvation, now therefore. That's the center of the hinge. They are the central words that change everything. They are the words that we read that should cause us to say, nothing in my life is ever going to be the same again. He saved me. Now, therefore, what are you going to say next? I'm leaning in. But I know my life is never going to be the same again, knowing what he's saying. See, the Bible does this in a number of occasions. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, for example, Paul has just spent three chapters surveying the glories of Calvary. Three long chapters reminding you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God made you alive together with Christ. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, that you've been saved. He forgave you. He reconciled you. He adopted you. Heaven is your home. He even sealed you with the Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Church, this is who you are. This is your identity, a saved and a redeemed people. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. In light of who you are, church, I therefore urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. It does the same in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. 11 chapters, 11 glorious chapters of Paul, once again, surveying the wondrous cross, surveying the glories of the gospel, surveying who we really are in Christ. And then chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In light of who you are, in light of who you've been declared to be by God, offer your lives a spiritual worship. And that's exactly what's happening here in chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 5. In light of the reality that I have bore you on eagles' wings, now therefore. See, Israel, Israel, you've been purchased for a purpose. Israel, you have been saved from something to something else. In fact, someone, namely God himself. Israel, your freedom then was never meant to be freedom in and of itself. That would be cruel. No, your freedom was to worship and serve and have a relationship with the one true and living God. It was to be drawn out, to be drawn into me. It wasn't to be drawn out to you just to go on your merry little way. It was drawn out to be drawn in. To be with God. To serve Him. To know Him and to love Him and to have a genuine relationship with Him. A relationship which changes everything. You know, my friends, that's why for us as Christians, it's so important to understand and realize that there is a therefore in our lives. It is a profoundly important moment and a profoundly important maturing moment, I think, in the Christian life. When you encounter people where they just say, oh, I got saved. Oh, I put my faith in Jesus when I was four. Well, obviously, I don't live like that now. I do whatever I want. You think, well, either you are not a Christian or you are a Christian, but profoundly immature. Because you never got to the therefore. You just ran off. One of the most important moments of the Christian life is to realize there is always a therefore in the Christian life. If we really know God and we understand, I've been carried forward on eagle's wings and that has no emotional affection in our lives that causes us to want to get to know the eagle, then we're probably not Christians. We're just on a journey towards it. There's always a therefore in the Christian life. It's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an emotional response as well. When you realize in light of all he's done for me, I just want to know him and be with him. It's so important for the Christian to realize that there is an therefore in our lives. And likewise, it's so important to realize that that therefore is the absolute kindness of God to us. Because what he's doing is saying, hey, church, the real treasure of the gospel is me. I gave you a freedom to know me and to be with me. See, think about the story of Exodus so far. One of the things you've seen again and again is the Lord's provision, isn't it? They get thirsty. Hey, I'll give you a drink. They need food. Hey, I'll give you food. Well, we don't know where we're going. I'll give you guidance. Well, we probably need leaders. I'll give you leaders. Well, we're going to need friends because I'm getting tired. That's okay. I'll give you friends. Listen, I want you to care for one another. 
See, once we get to chapter 20, we can make the huge mistake of thinking, oh, what was all so gracious now becomes law. It's just laws now. It was grace over here. This is so nice. Law. The tone of God hasn't changed. Because here's the important thing that we need to understand even now about the law, the Ten Commandments. They are not rules that have been given by a distant and authoritarian master. They are instruction that has been given by a loving and kind father. Instruction as the father stands on the edge of Mount Sinai and says, Hey, listen, I know you. I know how you're made because I made you. And I know how it's going to go well for you and I know how it's going to do you damage. So I want to give you instructions as to how you are to live for your good. That don't sound like law to me. That sounds like the kindness of a father who loves his people. Which I think kind of changes everything. When God sits us down and starts talking to us all the way through the book of Exodus, it is a kind and purposeful speech. And that's what we have here Then in these verses. We have a purposeful and kind command. And where that leads us to then is our profound opportunity. Which is my third point. Our profound opportunity. Again at verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. My friends, our profound opportunity then is not only to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received, although that is a profound opportunity in and of itself, to realize he saved me by his grace. It is scandalous grace. If you knew me, you would realize how scandalous this is. He saved me. The only reason why I'm here is because he carried me on eagle's wings. He forgave me. He redeemed me. He adopted you. What a profound privilege then that I get to live for him. In and of itself, it is a profound opportunity to live for the Lord. Is it not? It's incredible. But what he's trying to help us see here is it's, it's even more than that. Because there is a profound opportunity on our lives also that as we live our lives, we can live our lives in a way that he called us and declared us to actually be. See, God has declared us to be certain things. And now what he's saying is, now I'm going to give you the opportunity to actually live like those things as well. To be those people that have always called you to be. To be those people. And so when we obey his voice and seek to keep his covenant, it's clear that number one, we get to live then as his treasured possession. Sovereign grace, when you obey the Lord and you keep his covenant, he looks back at you and says, yep, you are my treasured possession. See, I have five children, as you know, and I love them all. They are the best thing about me outside of my wife, my kids. And I love my kids. And there are times when they do things that can be challenging to me. And there are times, many times, that I do things that will be challenging to them. But there are other times when as I look at my kids, who I already dearly love, they do something in such a way, and you just think as a dad, I love that. 
I really love that. I love it when you do that. I love it when you treat your mum like that. I love it when you speak to people like that. Well done. And what we are seeing, I believe, right here in headline, is that is the opportunity we get with God when we do something that he says he loves. When we obey his voice and we seek to keep his covenant, a situation where he already loves you, he looks on and says, I love that. I really love it when you do that. See, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, we read that for God loves a cheerful giver. What does that mean then? If you're not a cheerful giver, he doesn't love you? Well, it depends what we're talking about. God loves his children, yes, but what he's saying is, but I love it when you, as my child, trust me and honour me and believe in me and give cheerfully and trusting your life to me. I love that. I love it. All the way through the Bible, we're taught things that honour God and obey God and trust God. And what he's trying to help us see is, listen, when you do that, when you do these things, when you trust me, when you reject yourself and the desires that you want to do and you trust that I am giving you a better way that honours me, it trusts me, it obeys me. And listen, I love it when you do that. See, in the book of Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, I think it's one of the most interesting verses in the Bible because it's this moment where you understand that on the last day, all the things that were once hidden will be revealed. All the motives of the heart will be revealed. All the purposes of our heart will be revealed. And for many of us in that moment, I think we read those opening things and you think, oh, dearie me, that's going to be pretty difficult. Like you say, the secret things are going to be revealed. Yeah. Oh, but here's what God then says. Why is it so important that the secret things be revealed? It says here, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, because in that moment, each one will then receive their commendation from God. That's the God we serve. He's not an angry God that's just trying to find us out. He's a loving father that's leaning in and that his eyes go around the land. He's looking for his children and where he sees his children honoring him and obeying him and trusting him, he goes, I love that. And on that day, you are going to receive my well done for that. Well done. Keep going. That's the God we serve. He's not, it's not like he's looking forward to that last day where he's like, finally, I can give him a few words. No, he's looking forward to that last day where he can say, well done. I know that no one else knew what was going on in your heart then, but well done, because you did that for me. I know that as you served in that situation and no one noticed, no one commended you, no one said a thing, I, I knew that. And son, I'm going to commend you now. Well done. That's the God we serve. And when we trust him and obey him and honor him, when we obey his voice and seek to keep his covenant, we get to live as his treasured possession. What a sweet and kind and loving reality, don't you think? To live under the gaze of God, knowing here's what he's doing as he looks on at your life. He is looking for things, looking for evidences of grace so that he can say, I love that. And when we get to obey his voice and seek to keep his covenant, we also, he says there in verse 6, we get to live as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You know, in the Old Testament, the priests had an incredible privilege 
that position. They had an incredibly, incredible privileged responsibility. And that was all the case because they had a unique relationship with God and unique access to God. They were the priests. And so they were the men responsible to stand between God and man. They would represent men to God by praying for them and interceding for them and offering offerings for them. They would speak on behalf of the people to God. And then they would speak on behalf of God to the people. They would represent God to the people as well. And what God is trying to help us see here is, listen, if you will obey my voice and you will seek to obey my covenant, then that's the profound privilege that you will all have in your lives as well. Because you'll be like a kingdom of priests and a holy nation before me. See, when we then represent people to God, when we go to God in prayer and we say, Lord, please help this situation. Please help this nation. Please help Elise as we prayed for this morning. You know what we're doing in that moment? We're being the priesthood of all believers right there. We're being priests before God. We are interceding towards God for people and for situations in the world. And God wants us to do that. And when we do that, He's like, see, I told you that's who you were. I told you you're a kingdom of priests. And likewise, when we take the time to represent God to people, that's when we're also doing a priestly work and being a holy nation. See, we're called to be holy as God is holy, aren't we? It's a call on the Christian life. It's the way it is. It's the way God's made us. Why? Well, because all the way through Exodus, you discover that we are serving the God who wants to make himself known. How is he going to make himself known today? Through your lives and through my life. People should see something different in Christians. A city on a hill. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. They should be able to look at us and see what we do with our lives and our energy and the decisions we make and go, what is up with that? And when they say, what is up with that? We point to the Holy One of Israel and say, he is up with that. It ain't me. I'm not even that great. I would probably be the most unkind, selfish person you've ever met outside of the amazing grace of God in my life. So let me tell you about the Holy One of Israel that changed my life. That's why we're meant to be pursuing holiness, not just so God can say, oh, well done, yes, good, that's the way you're meant to be. No, it's, it's an evangelistic moment. We are meant to represent God to people. People are meant to interact with Sovereign Grace Church and go, what is up with that? I see their lives, I know their lives, they're just very different to everybody else. I mean, it is a bit, it's a bit weird. But it's an interesting weird. What's up with that? Why are they like the way they are? And that's when we should be saying as Christians, let me tell you about the one who changed my life, who saved me on eagle's wings. His name is Jesus, and he's the one I serve. In that moment, we're doing the role of a priest. We're not only representing people to God, we're representing God to the people and then inviting them to come. Come and meet him. Let me show you Yahweh. Let me show you the King of kings and Lord of lords. Because in that moment, we are being who we've already been declared to be. Namely, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
No wonder then, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, he tells us as he gathers the church, he says, but you, pulling back the curtain on all the way from Exodus as he speaks to the church, he says, but you church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Sound familiar? It's got it from somewhere, right there. This is who you are, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There was a reason that he saved you. Why? To proclaim his glories, to show everybody the profound effect that God can have in one's life and what it looks like to have a relationship with him, what it looks like to find your peace in him, your joy in him, your satisfaction in him. You're not putting it on. It's just the transforming effect of the gospel in your life. No wonder he gets a bit lathered up in those verses about, listen, be these people. Operate like this in your life. Why? Because people will see God in you. The God who wants to make himself known will in part make himself known through your life. So be holy as I am holy. Be the people that you've always been declared to be. My friends, in these words... Chapters 4 through 6, I really do believe we have words that change everything. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's what I want you to understand. Spiritually speaking, you're still in Egypt. Everything I've just said right now isn't even your story. Because you haven't even got to now, therefore. You're still a change. The Bible's clear that in and through your life right now, you are still in the bondage of sin. You are still under the bondage of the power and penalty of sin in your life. And yet here's the truth of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anybody who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He sent Jesus Christ on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And he said, listen, if you'll put your faith in my son, that I will carry you out on eagle's wings. If you put your faith in my son, I will forgive you. I will redeem you. I will adopt you. Heaven will be your home. In that moment, boom, your chains will be broken. You will rise and you will go forward and you will follow thee. You will come back to having a relationship with me, a relationship you were always made to have, but you rejected. But I've come after you in the personal work of Jesus. And if you put your faith in him, then I will save you. My friends, these are words that change everything. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to urge you to put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior and know this freedom today. It will change your life as it changed mine. Christianity isn't about rules. Christianity is about faith. And when faith exists, here's what happens. What you want to do then is you bend the knee to the Lord and say, what else have you got for me? I want to follow you because I love you. And I know you always have what is best for me ultimately to do. So I want to follow you. Help me to live in the blessings of the covenant, not the curse. Put your faith in him and know for yourself what it really means to be truly set free. 
And if you're here today and you are a believer, which would be the majority of you, I simply want to encourage you with this reality. It's the reality that you have been given a ring to carry that is far greater than anything Frodo could have ever asked or imagined. Because you have been given the ring of salvation to carry. In his grace, he saved you on eagle's wings. He set you free. And then he says, now therefore. Now therefore, live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Live in a manner worthy of the ring that you hold in your hand. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Live it out. Why? Because as you live it out, you will show to the world that you are my treasured possession and you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And I'll use you to make the greatness of who I am known to the world. My friends, you've been given a ring far greater than anything Frodo ever held in his hand. So treasure it and show it off and live it out. You will never be able to do this by yourself because I can't either. And that's why we have to say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. True. But the very next statement, but it is God who works in us to work and to will for his good pleasure. It's him. So we need to treasure that ring and get on our knees and cry out to him for grace and each and every day of our lives then keep walking forward. These are words that change everything. So may we live it out and may all glory go to him. Let's pray. Lord, I cannot get out of my mind the picture of the eagles coming and saving us. Lord, how kind you are to us that when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, when we were in chains to the power and penalty of sin, you came after us. When we had nothing left in the tank, no energy, nowhere to turn, You grabbed us and you lay us down on eagle's wings and you carried us back to yourself. Lord, would we never move on from the reality of our identity as people who are saved and redeemed by your glorious grace. And then motivated by that reality, would we now therefore rise and follow Lord, you deserve it all. You deserve it all. So may we give you our all. May we be the people you've always called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.